What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And today we are going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of a book that is very special to me. It's very close to my heart. I'm a big fan of this book. And so I'm not going to mess around with too much with intros today. But I just want to say... Uh, how much I enjoy this book and how much I've enjoyed reading the book and looking into this book for this podcast. It's quite short, but um, I'm hoping you enjoy. These are my thoughts uh, and a celebration of The Exorcist at 50 years old. Okay, well, I'm now going to transfer over to me and uh, uh, hope you enjoy. Today we're going to take a look at a book that is massively influential, although it can be argued that it isn't as influential as its film adaptation but we'll address that later. I'm going to talk about The Exorcist, released in 1971 and written by William Peter Blatty. A quick warning, in order to discuss this book, I'm going to give details, and so there will be spoilers ahead. Now, I expect that the vast majority of people listening to this podcast have watched the 1973 film Adaptation, This is a close and faithful adaptation, directed by the excellent William Friedkin. It was also able to be wonderfully adapted from the source material because the novel's author, Blatty, wrote the screenplay and was involved on set most days. One day, I will delve into that film series and may even do a full Exorcist retrospective. So I'm able to discuss the underrated gem, Exorcist 3, written and directed by Blatty, and based on his book, Legion. Anyway, back to the book. While the book was published in 1971, its inspiration goes back over two decades before. In 1949, a young boy named Robbie was believed to have become possessed in the town of Contage in Maryland. The story goes that he was very close with his aunt, She was a big part of his life when he was young, and he looked up to her. The aunt made some side money as a spiritualist medium, holding seances and using a Ouija board. The aunt suddenly passes away, and Robbie is left heartbroken. But he has been shown ways of contacting the dead by his aunt. Soon after he tried using the Ouija board, the activity started. Tappings, knocks and scratching noises, which quickly escalated to moving and disappearing objects. While this was noticed by the family, nothing was done, and these external events were soon followed by Robbie acting differently. He became sullen, quick to aggression, and displayed abilities that were difficult to explain including speaking in tongues. Eventually, the family did get an exorcist, and Robbie was treated and survived. 
Now, I should make it clear that this is an alleged story. I looked into it, and yes, there are details about it online, but they are vague, and mostly lead back to Blatty. Whether you believe this real-life tale of possession depends on your position as to whether demons or ghosts exist, and can they in fact possess people. Blatty was told this alleged incident by a student at Georgetown University, his university, hence why the novel is set in Washington and Georgetown. Moreover, Blatty was a Catholic, and while he had been raised as such, I would suggest that the content of both The Exorcist and Legion show that he wanted, maybe even needed, to explore this religious upbringing and his relationship with organised religion as a whole through his fiction. Before we go any further, I think it's worth giving a brief overview of the story and the main characters. Daughter of actress Chris McNeil, Reagan becomes possessed while Chris is filming in Washington. At first, her behaviour is diagnosed as a physical ailment and a battery of tests are carried out, all finding little to nothing. While the girl's condition and behaviour worsens, she is eventually sent to be reviewed by a psychiatrist and a laundry list of syndromes and psychoses are discussed, all while Reagan declines. Things take a turn for the tragic when Chris's director, Dennings, is left alone with Reagan and he is killed. Not only is he killed, but he is also thrown from an open window and his head is twisted all the way round. This instigates a police investigation by Chief Detective Kinderman, a film-loving Columbo type who is determined to find the killer, but struggles to reconcile the evidence against the possibility of an 11-year-old girl being the killer. While this is escalating, we also follow Jesuit priest and psychiatrist, Father Damon Carras. Carras is visiting Washington to give some lectures and is introduced to Chris and Reagan through a fellow priest. Over a period of weeks and months, Carras wrestles with the question of whether Reagan is actually possessed, what this means for his struggling faith and the guilt he has at the death of his mother in poverty in New York. Eventually, he does reconcile that whether she is actually possessed is irrelevant, and the act of an exorcism may be the right thing, which, in turn, leads to belief that she is in fact possessed by the demon Pazuzu. For the final exorcism, Karras is joined by Father Merrin, an ageing priest who has been running from a past encounter with the demon now taking up residence in Reagan. The exorcism takes days, and is only successful after Merrin dies of a heart attack and Karras sacrifices himself, allowing the, the demon to possess his body before he throws himself from the bedroom window to the same fate as Dennings. The first thing to note is that the book has what I think of as a 70s pace. It takes its time to explore the characters, their mindset and the journey they go on. In particular, the book focuses on Father Karras. He starts from a position of doubt and guilt. Not only is his faith wavering, but he feels guilty that the church was his way out of poverty, that he left his mother behind and the church paid for his education 
And now that has not only led to his wavering faith, but his lack of faith in humanity. Listening to so many other people's problems has worn him down. I posit that Blatty is working through several questions he has, putting himself in the position of Carus, struggling between psychology and faith, science and religion. His own backstory is that of Carus. Blatty also came from a poor background, raised by a strictly religious mother who would have to move him from home to home as she was not able to pay the rent. He also attended a Jesuit school. However, I'm not sure he has the same revelations as Carus. In the opening of, opening of his follow-up book, Legion, Kinderman is at a murder scene and starts to contemplate some of the same themes. These then progress through the book, but that is for another discussion. At the end of the book, Carus regains his faith and is willing to sacrifice himself not as a suicide to keep running from his guilt, but as an act of compassion to put himself in harm's way to protect another. He reaches an understanding that both the material and metaphysical are real and have importance in the world. There are some odd moments of questioning which we will touch on in a moment, but the internal struggle of Carus is fascinating, heartfelt and so human. He is one of my favourite fictional characters. His fears and guilt are real and relatable. He stretches ideas to the very limits in order to have to not face up to the possibility that the presence of the defiled demon could mean that the divine exists as well. His eventual sacrifice is both tragic and joyful. However, regardless of Karras' journey, I would say that the book is pro-church. At least for the most part. Yes, it centres around the demonic possession of a young girl and a priest questioning his faith. But at no point is it looking to glorify the evil or the demonic. It remains vile and repulsive throughout. This is a true good versus evil story, and Karras travels along the hero's journey. His reluctance to be involved, the knowledge he gains along the journey, and the regaining of his faith is the boon for the journey. Going back to the church's institution, it presents a case that the church isn't going to jump straight to demons and supernatural. Even before the church is involved, Blatty takes Chris McNeil on a sensible, investigatory path. She goes to several doctors before the church. Even then, Karis looks at all options before demonic. Psychological, physiological, and even other forms of extra-human powers, like ESP and telekinesis. Oddly, presenting these as accepted science facts. It stretches credulity at times, but emphasises the lengths Karras is going to in order to prevent to having to face up to the possibility of a demon and the supernatural. More than this, Karras is supported by several other Jesuit characters, each well drawn out and human in their own right, presenting the inside look at the Jesuit order and the fact that these priests aren't any different from anyone else. Yes, they have devoted their lives to a cause, but they still have thoughts and fears like us all. In these moments, the book grows, widening a world so that when tragedy strikes, the, the reader 
feels it alongside the characters that are left behind. In this way, the book is loaded with sadness and regret. Chris is divorced from her husband and has devoted a lot of time to her acting career. As Reagan's condition is examined, and she declines, Chris is forced to confront this and how it may have impacted Reagan. What damage could this have done? Chris starts the book riding high. She is successful and working through a regular acting job and living a privileged life. This is stripped away in an instant, with the death of Dennings, and is eroded further as the demon takes hold. The book highlights that success and privilege can't always help. She may have access to the best doctors, but there is a force greater than her and the access her wealth grants her. She is brought low and made to question her own position and life. Within Chris's house is her housekeeper and handyman, man and wife, Carl and Willie. It is revealed later in the book that Carl has been keeping a secret from his wife for years. A burden that he does not want to share. He has let his wife believe their daughter died of an overdose years before. Hiding from her the fact she is alive and living in squalor not far from Georgetown. In addition to this, Carl is often harangued by Dennings, before his death, about being a German and a Nazi. Carl is, in fact, Swiss. He takes the jabs in his stride, and it is alluded to that this is because this is something that he has lived with his whole life. There was still a generation that felt the heavy impact of the Second World War in the 70s. This leads to Dennings and his alcoholism. Throughout the first third of the book, his outbursts and drinking are brushed off as something to be tolerated if you want to work with and know Dennings. However, it's clear that these alcohol dependency and deep-seated anger at others, especially Carl, is rooted in something else. Something sadder and darker. It's one of the few things never fully explored in the book, but again, it is alluded that there is a history there, if yet it is unspoken. A character we have not mentioned much yet is Father Merrin. It's with him that the book opens, and it is explained that he has moved from pe preaching to practising archaeology to try and forget a past event. However, the knowledge that this event will repeat is always there and he has a portent of what is to come, as well as the realisation that he is not ready for the fight. He does return, and we find out he has been taking heart medication to keep going through the exorcism and mentacaris in the act, to keep them both strong. The reader is given the information of this condition early on, so we are aware that he is burdened with the fear of failure. It is worth noting something at this point. When Merrin dies at the end, the Pazuzu-possessed Reagan is ranting that it has been cheated of its battle, that his death is an easy way out, and the fight is not over. Pazuzu even screams at Karis to resurrect Merrin so the exorcism can continue. This moment is a gut punch towards the end of the book, but also an insight into what has gone before. It confirms for all involved that in that moment the demon is real, has been here before, 
and in fact has been defeated. Finally is Detective Kinderman. He struggles with this investigation, always coming back to the same conclusion, but not wanting it to be the case. Even reflecting at one point as to whether a cured Reagan could be a future danger, and could he let her go. He, as the figure of material authority, struggles and looks back on his time in the police, and keeps trying not to end up finding Reagan guilty of murder. He is not able to move beyond the materialistic world, a world of rules and facts, where Karis and the other priests have a metaphysical structure to explore and use to view events. He is trapped with what he can prove against what is right and just. And finally, as we've mentioned previously, we have Karis, who is carrying immense guilt for abandoning his mother to join the church. Did he do the right thing? Especially if he doesn't have his faith any longer. The book moves at a slower pace to the film, giving characters time to grow and the tension to build. It's a lot clearer in the book that the events take place over months and how they impact all involved. The emotional, psychological and physical wearing down of the people living in the house and others as they get pulled into its gravitational pull. In the truest way, the horror of the stories is driven by the people involved. Yes, the depiction of the possessed Reagan is horrific, but it's the interactions between the demon and people that strikes at your heart. The book is a study in faith, desperation, and the human condition when put to the ultimate test. What would you do in the face of evil? Not an evil that you can shoot down, but the corruption of something innocent. An invasive corruption that then starts to taint all around it. Each character is forced to question their belief system and what they are capable of doing, whether by their own actions or that of the demon. The film, being a visual medium, leans more on the gruesome and disturbing visuals, spinning heads, pea soup, vomit and subtle images of Pazuzu watching the viewer. With the book, we are able to get an internal look at each character and feel their horror, as well as our own, at the gruesomeness that's being presented. It should also be noted that Father Merrin doesn't actually enter the main story until the last 70 pages. He's a minor character in the grand scheme of things. He may get the poster and be considered the titular character. He is no more than a resolution to a nightmare we have experienced for the previous 250 plus pages. And when he does enter the fray, he is unsuccessful. It is Karis that is successful. I think I've made it clear how much I enjoy this book. It's definitely better than the film, both cuts, but it's not by a big gap. The book gives us more, invites us in, and then when we've stepped over the threshold, keeps us pinned down to experience the unrelenting anguish and confusion of those involved. I know I've talked about a lot of points in this episode, but I highly recommend reading the book. And if you do, get the 40th anniversary edition. It's the definitive edit. Moreover, if you're more of an audiobook fan, the 40th anniversary edition is read by William Peter Blatty, and it's an incredible audio treat. Before I finish, I want to compare The Exorcist 
to two modern possession books I read recently. Both excellent in their own way. The first is A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, published in 2015. It's a dark tale of troubled family dynamics, exploitation media and the questions of mental health versus spiritual fear. It taps into similar themes of despair and emotional turmoil as The Exorcist, but builds on on it by having the story told from the perspective of a young girl who is watching her older sister change, while looking to the adults around for comfort and guidance. The Exorcist is about an organised adult world being disrupted by the presence of evil. A head full of ghosts insert the same evil into a fragile family dynamic. The end result is a story that gets under your skin, and while it isn't a classic, it's still a very strong recommend. The other is My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix, published in 2016. A mix of 70s and 80s class divisions, school life, as well as music and movie references. Whilst most definitely horror, it follows a more camp path and leans closer to its 80s horror influences. Both are really good and solid recommends, and they are laced with the DNA of The Exorcist. The family dynamics, an exorcist with doubt, and the risk of fates worse than death. Clichéd, I know, but true. As well as the glimpses of the real world to maintain the hope of redemption and salvation. The main differences between these and the exorcist is the pace. A head full of ghosts and my best friend's exorcism move at a modern pace, which is fine. That's what their audience is expecting. They lean into modern horror tropes, which are mostly used well, but the languid pace and endless grind of The Exorcist is more horrific to me. It is worth knowing where they came from, and if you like any modern possession story, you owe it to yourself to go back and experience The Exorcist. Now, before we finish, a brief excerpt from The Exorcist. Caris moved slowly to the foot of the bed, where he stopped and then listened to the quiet rumbling of diuretic voiding into plastic pants. Why, hello, Garrus, Reagan greeted him cordially. Hello, the priest answered calmly. Tell me, how are you feeling? At the moment, very happy to see you, yes, very glad. And now a long, furred tongue lolled out of the mouth, while the eyes appraised Garrus with naked insolence. Flying your colours, I see. Very good. Another rumbling. You don't mind the stink, do you, Karis? Not at all. What a liar. Does, uh, does lying bother you? Mildly. But the devil likes liars. Only the good ones. My dear Karis, only the good ones. Moreover... Who told you I'm the devil? Didn't you? No, I might have. I might. I'm not well. By the way, did you believe me? Oh, I did. Then my apologies in case I misled you. In fact, I'm just a poor, struggling demon. A devil. A subtle distinction, but one not entirely lost upon our father in hell. Nasty term, that. Hell. I've been mentioning we ought to think of changing it to the Scottish dimension, but he never seems to listen. 
You won't mention my slip of the tongue to him, Karis, will you? Eh? When you see him... See him? I is he here? In the piglet? No such luck. We're just a poor little family of wandering souls. By the way, you don't blame us for being here, do you? After all, we have no place to go. No home. And how long are you planning to stay? Face contorted in sudden rage, Reagan jerked up from the pillow as she shouted in fury, Until the piglet dies! And then as suddenly, she settled back into her pillow with a thick, lipped, drooling grin, saying, Incidentally, what an excellent day for an exorcism. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. My reflections and thoughts on The Exorcist at 50 years old. A novel that is still hard-hitting and a classic in my mind, a book I've read multiple times. So, uh, yeah, seriously, go out and check the book. Anyway... Let me know what you think about The Exorcist, whether it be the book or the film. Get in contact. You know how to find me on social media. That's at 20th Century Geek on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can email me directly at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Go check out our website. There's loads of reviews, news, other web, uh, episodes, all kinds of bits and pieces at 20thCenturyGeek.com. Sign up for our newsletter. That's right, you got a newsletter. Have a monthly update on all the things going on behind the scenes. And, ladies and gentlemen, if you really enjoy what we're doing, please go to your podcast catcher and leave a review, preferably a five-star review. I really appreciate it, and I do read them all, and so that would be greatly appreciated. Or, if you like us a lot more than that, we have a Patreon page. It's Patreon slash 20CGPod, uh, and there's a whole heap of stuff we do over there. A new monthly podcast, a quarterly uh, podcast with uh, professional creators, uh, all kinds of stuff. More stuff coming as well. So go check that out if you like more about what we're doing. If you want more uh, 20th Century Geek content, that's where to go. And it helps keep the lights on at 20th Century Towers. And finally, we have a YouTube channel. I'm doing all kinds of bits and pieces over there as well, including classic trailer reactions. I'll go back and have a look at old trailers, see if they did hype up the film. Did they respect? Did they reflect the film properly? Um, go, go check that out. Anyway, it's all wonderful. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. As always, I really appreciate it, and I shall see you on the next episode. <laughs>